I've really been looking forward to this week. And I've already seen a bunch of you that I know from Westview and from some other places around Westwood, I should say. It's been a while since I've been here. Uh, but I'm going to have a few more introductory remarks, I think, before the sermon, since I've got a lot of material I want to go through here in the Bible class period. So we'll save all the welcomes and all of that for, for the sermon period. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> and we're also going to put this passage up on the board. And as you're looking, I want you to think about the term postmodernism that you see there on the, on the screen. We've all heard that term, and yet I wonder how much we recognize how much it's expected. Of course, our friends, but also each one of us on an individual basis. So um, that's what I to talk about. I don't see any lights, but I don't wander too far away, so I'm okay, I think. Okay. I want to look at the text, then we're going to get some applications from it. Here are the Apostle Paul talking about some dangers facing the Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition... According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Look at that concept. No one takes you captive. Have you ever known anyone who was taken captive, prisoner as it were, by some weird ideas and weird philosophies? I'm thinking right now of a young woman who's very close to me. Um, raised as a Christian, went to college, took all of the required courses. And sometimes you get a big, heavy dose of modern philosophy there. Feminism, sociology, philosophy. They begin to, they begin to affect her outlook on life. And I think this was something that was building up in her a long time before we could actually see the visible manifestations of it. Finally, she just stopped attending services. When we try to talk to her now about the simple gospel of Christ, his love, submitting to his authority in every way. Have you ever tried to talk to someone like this? It's like you're talking to a wall. The eyes are just kind of glazed over. And you say, nothing is penetrating. The hope of salvation, the purpose in life, the love of God. And you can, everything is being filtered through that concept that they have. You can probably think of some friends you have are that way as well. She's been taken captive to the point that she cannot appreciate the blessing that God has given her. Those of us who are parents know this battle well. The battle to save our children from so many weird ideas, uh, odd philosophies that are throwing through this world. I've reminded of a story of a woman in Florida who lived, they lived with her family, she lived with her family by a big lake. She looked out her window one day and saw an alligator dragging her young son towards the water. She went rushing out of the house. She was able to grab her son 
around his chest. The, the alligator had him by the foot. And for a few moments, you had a tug of war between life and death. Thankfully, she was able to save her son. Uh, it hurt. The battle hurt him. It, an injured leg. But she was able to save him. Parents, do you ever feel that way? The alligator has your child. The alligator is dragging your child towards perdition. Keep tugging. Keep pulling. It may hurt. It may hurt your child. But the alternative is unthinkable. That's being taken captive by philosophy and human tradition. The last part of the verse. These philosophies which are so uh, pervasive today. What do they depend on? The elemental spirits of the world. Human tradition. All human philosophies are designed ultimately to allow man to just give himself over to his lust and the way he wants to do things. But let's look at verses 9 and 10. For in him, in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. If we're so full of Christ and who he is and the love of him, why do we need to even look around about us at the shallow, empty philosophies of the world? Well, what were some philosophies that threatened early Christians? I think first of Jewish mysticism, asceticism, the idea that you can't do this and you can't do that. And Paul deals a lot with that in the last part of this chapter here. You have the popular Greek philosophy that affected especially the Sadducees of Jesus' days. Hundreds of gods, the idea of resurrection or heavenly beings was immediately uh, discounted. Then you have, and I'm sure most of you are acquainted this word, Gnosticism. All flesh, everything physical is evil. It almost looks like in the last part of chapter 2 that what you have is maybe a mixture of that along with some of the Jewish mysticism. These were some philosophies that threatened early Christians. I don't think they threaten as much today, although you may have some descendants that are still flowing around some of the philosophical streams. I want to talk about what affects the way people think today. And of course, what we're doing is contrasting it with the word of Christ. Uh, Some have said that you could say in the last thousand years or so, you could look at three philosophical epochs. What you might call pre-modernism. These dates are all estimates. Some people say 1600, 1650 or whatever. But the idea was truth is absolute. That's what we believe. But how do you get truth? The church reveals truth to you. Of course, the church is just human beings. And the church can foul up things as it did in this case. So that would be pre-modernism. Then you have what you might call, and of course there's all kinds of different names that you can throw at these ways of thinking. But between about 1700 and the first part of the last century, what seemed to dominate most is what we could call modernism, maybe a little better known as rationalism. One thing that's interesting, as this period is starting up, many of the men who were 
well-known and pushing this idea, we're believers in God. You may have even heard the name of Francis Bacon or John Locke. And their idea is that we can understand what God says without the church, but we have to use our logic and reason to understand the Bible. Of course, later on, when you get into the 1800s, later 1700s, 1800s, and so forth, what you see is that most people who believed in what you could call modernism, rationalism, rejected the idea of God. And the God to them became science and reason. Science is the solution. And uh, we had some amazing discoveries there through science, the scientific method. How many of us here would not be alive if it weren't for medical advancements. I had scarlet fever as a kid. Scarlet fever used to just about kill all the uh, uh, ch- children that had it. It was, a, it was, it was a, something that, that, that caused much death. And there, maybe, I don't know if that could have gotten out of my appendicitis or not, but so many of us here are here because of the advances in medicine through the scientific method. How, how do we get here today? The automobile, the radio, uh, television. What great wonders we see that have been brought to us by science. And yet, science brought us horrible weapons. Two world wars. Great slaughters of people. We came into the nuclear age brought to us by science. How has science given man meaning to life? How has science given man purpose? And the answers to the most important questions. And so you begin to see a rebellion against the modernism, the rationalism. And so we become to pre-modernism and you can put different dates on there. These things evolve gradually. But 1950 is a good round figure as to where we see it beginning to to start to make some headway. This is the rebellion against rationalism. And there's some good aspects to it. We'll talk about them briefly in just a minute. But there's so much bad in it that takes people away from God and the hope that God gives. Well, what are some key concepts of this philosophy, which is really dominant now, where our children study in the universities and even in the high schools and elementary schools. First of all, there's no absolute truth. And of course, there's all kinds of contradictions here because when you say there's no absolute truth, you're saying something that's absolute. And you can usually try to point out this contradiction to those who believe in postmodernism, but the bottom line is they don't care. But each culture determines what's best for it. And uh, the ones who really go way off into this believe that if I want to find my truth in some kind of a crystal or if I want to try and find my truth through astrology, that's what works for me. Who's going to say that I am wrong about that? Something that illustrates this, and I see several hoary heads in. I wish mine were still hoary. I don't have anything left. But uh, you remember when they were going to nominate uh, Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, a brilliant man. And it looked like he was going to get in without much difficulty. But then appeared another brilliant person, a brilliant woman named 
Anita Hill. And Anita Hill said, he sexually harassed me. He said, no, I did not. So you have two brilliant people with conflicting ideas. He did. I did not. One commentator said, after observing both of them, their brilliance and their sincerity, I think they're both telling the truth. What? <laughs> How can both be telling the truth when they're just complete contradiction? But that's postmodernism. If you feel that that's the truth for you, it's true for you. And if you think that's not the truth for you, that's not the truth for you. There's no absolute truth. Here's another idea. <clears throat> that words, language... It's just games. One of the first uh, philosophers who began to push this postmodernism, I'm not going to try to say his name, it's French. I can handle Spanish a little bit, but not French. But uh, if you want to know his name, I will tell you after services, and you can pronounce it for me if you've studied French. But he used the term meta narratives. And the idea was that religion, science, politics, they build these meta-narratives, just the words to try to control other people. Blah, 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 blah. Science, blah, 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 blah. Religion, blah, blah, blah. And what does it all mean? It's nothing. It's just games. Language games used to oppress other people. You know, if you think about it a little bit, you might be right in some areas, especially after listening to some political talk shows. Blah, 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 blah means whatever you want it to mean. Of course, if you are a Christian and you know how important words are in the Bible, you can see the conflict coming on here. But what was the problem with him and others like him who say, language is just games? What do they use to convey that idea? Language. And somebody's pointed that out to them. If words and language is, is just involve games and nobody should take any of this seriously, why should we take your book seriously? And I guess he can see the contradiction. You don't. You take it or leave it. That's postmodernism. That is what dominates where your children are studying in the university. Pluralism. All ideas are equally good. Any world religion is equally good. Atheism is just as good as all the world religions. It's very disrespectful to say that one religion is superior to the other. Uh, many of you may have heard of Josh McDowell. He's a lecturer from, I, I think, even from the late 1960s. Uh, on college campuses talking about belief in God, giving reasons for belief in God. I heard an interview with him driving in the, uh, down the road one time. And he pointed out the fact that in his early days of lecturing, 60s, maybe 70s, that when he was through, this was the primary challenge that he would receive. How do you know that's true? That's a rationalist, a modernist challenge. But he said in the latter 70s and especially getting in the 80s, all of a sudden that challenge was almost never heard again. 
Instead of hearing, how do you know that's true? The challenge was, how dare you say that Buddhists and Muslims are wrong? That's a postmodern challenge. You see the difference? And a lot of us are old enough to have seen that shift in thinking among our friends, among the people we talk to. In my youth, how do you know that's true? And I'm not that old. Now, how dare you say that someone else could be wrong? So, we've seen the changes. We're going through this major shift in thinking in our culture before going, just briefly, I think there's some good things about postmodernism, especially as it reacts to some of the extremes of modernism and rationalism. Um, there's less tendency among people affected by this to be easily swayed by these dogmatic theories about things like evolution. There's more open-mindedness about it. Uh, a lot of them are what I would call anti-denominational. Think about what we sometimes call denominationalism. Denominations and creeds that are designed to support denominations come from the old rationalism. The idea that we're going to put everything in a nice, neat, systematic order. And if you don't follow the way we put it in there, then you can't be a part of our denomination. They try, denominations try to control members, try to control congregations with creeds and rules. But by its very nature, postmodernism does not like that type of control. I think sometimes we let our old uh, terminology get us mixed up sometimes. Uh, here may be some very independent church here. And we say, those are just a bunch of denominational people. Well, you know, really, they're not if they're truly independent. Now, they may have some problems and they may have some leftover teachings that come from the old traditional denominations. But uh, maybe denominationalism isn't their big problem because postmodernism promotes a kind of independent uh, approach, which can be good. Uh, they're anti-Pharisee. The idea that emphasis is on externals, that's what Jesus fought in passages like Matthew chapter 23. Uh, and many uh, who have been affected by postmodernism don't like that emphasis solely on externals. So I think you can say that any of these human types of philosophies would take into their extremes. The old rationalism is... Takes people away from Christ, but of course, postmodernism does as well. And now I'm going to talk about where we get it. I'm going to go briefly through this. Where do we see this? Schools. Our schools are full of this. And I guess there's one word, if there's one word that sums up the way that this way of thinking is promoted, is the word tolerance. Now, if you say tolerant, Tolerate. Treat people kindly, even though they disagree with you. Respect them, even though they disagree with you. I think we all believe in that. The Bible teaches that. Respect for other people. But of course, what they want goes far beyond treating kindly, treating respectfully. Celebrate it. 
if you don't celebrate it and say it's good, then you're intolerant. And of course, that's how, maybe this is one of those language games that people use to try to get people away from the teachings of God. Uh, Television, media, and how that has changed. I guess, I'll just go on and confess, I'm 62. And when I think of what I saw on television when I was a kid, and when I think of what's on there now... Boy, the change and the change in attitudes. I'm not some say say which came first, the chicken or the egg, which came first, the the postmodernism or uh, the TV to promote it. I guess it all goes together. But, of course, it's changed attitudes towards uh, marriage, towards sex, towards drugs, towards gambling, uh, towards materialism. All of these things have just been um, really redefined through a lot of the postmodern ideas that we see around us. How has this affected religion? And of course, this is what concerns us the most because we're interested in the true religion of Jesus Christ. One thing, and I want to take a little bit of time on this, even among brethren... I see, as it were, some efforts to try to undermine the certainty that we can have about the Bible message. And and it seems to be the thought of many people, you just really can't know the truth in so many areas. And here again, this may be a reaction against what we saw in the 1930s and 40s. The truth is the way I say it, and if not, you're out of here. That's wrong. But this reaction, which is saying you can never know the truth, takes us away from Jesus Christ as as well. And various reasons are given as to why you can't really know the truth that comes from the Bible. First of all, it all depends on your interpretation. Well, you know, there's some truth in that we do interpret the scriptures, but there are correct interpretations. And there are incorrect interpretations. And sometimes it's a process of growth to move towards from one to the other. But the idea is we can never know any truth because it's all a matter of interpretation. Here's something I've noticed, too. Sometimes someone will come up and almost as if it were some kind of conspiracy. Uh, There are just a lot of different translations of the Bible. How can we ever know what God wants us to do with all the different translations around? There are a lot of different translations. And yet one of the strengths, I think, of the Word of God is the fact that even with some of the worst ones, you can still see God's truth. In them about Christ coming to earth, dying for our sins, about our response to the gospel. Um, that's sometimes we make big deals out of things that aren't really that big of a deal. And here's another thing that I've seen people bring up. And I think the idea is to try to say the Bible message. We just can never understand it. And that is, how did we really come to have 
what we call the canon, the books that we are to be accepting as God's word. How did that all come together? And some people just seem like to be happy to try to put as much doubt on that process as they can. Of course, I can't go into all of that here. But it's simply a fact that Jesus revealed his truth to the apostles. And that truth existed orally for many, many years. Gradually, it began to be written down by the apostles and other prophets. Those began collected. So you have it orally. You have it written. Eventually, it is all written. But it's all the same teaching given orally for a period of time, later in written form. It's the same teaching. I use this illustration sometimes. I'm very forgetful. And sometimes Beverly say, Gardner, would you go to the store and get some eggs and some bacon and some orange juice? Okay, eggs, bacon, orange juice. Now remember, eggs, bacon, and orange juice. Get that? Okay, eggs, bacon, and orange juice. But she knows me. She knows me very well. Let me write it down for you. Eggs, bacon, orange juice. So I go to the store. What was I was supposed to get? Eggs, bacon, and orange juice. So how do I have my wife's instructions? I have written, I have them first orally, then written down. Are there any big changes? Are, are, it's the same instructions. Orally, written down. Christ gave us his teaching first, orally, through the apostles and prophets. They wrote it down. Later, that's what we have. No conspiracy here. Nothing that messes up the truth, that makes it so completely uh, uh, incomprehensible that we'll never know what's going on. But people, and you will find them, will try to undermine the fact that God's message can be understandable. And of course, in this type of, of um, approach, feelings are emphasized much more than analyzing Scripture. You'll hear a lot of criticism among those influenced by postmodernism about what they call Baconian hermeneutics. That sounds good to me just to start with. You can't get any better than, uh, than bacon. But we're not talking about the food. We're talking about the man who they think in their minds elaborated some kind of a system we're supposed to follow. But if you're not going to follow the scriptures logically, how do you follow God's will? Your feelings. How you feel, that is God talking to you. We'll talk about that some more during the week. Entertainment-oriented worship. The pressures coming upon brethren now to adapt various types of entertainment-oriented worship used to be the pressure was, are we going to have an organ or a piano in the church? You're out of date if you think that's what it's all about now. We want to have rock bands. We want to have lasers. We want to have fog machines. And why? These are things that produce certain types of emotion. These are things that we see in the entertainment world around about us. These are things we want to bring in to augment 
the feelings. What about old-fashioned, old-fashioned legalist? And you know the terms that are thrown out sometimes. It's affected. It's affected our attitudes towards worship, towards authority, and everything else. Well, if this is an unhealthy spiritual uh, current that's affecting many of us, and I think even all of us have to admit that there's some ways in which this has affected us, how can we deal with it? I think two main ways. First of all, we're going to have to point out the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He is the way. And secondly, the understandability of his teaching. Let's just look at a few passages here. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but except through me. That's, that's not very popular among postmodernists today. That is a one way. And uh, that's not pluralism. Well, how about the scriptures? Uh, can we understand them? You may have, you've probably thought of these verses as I've gone through here. Paul, speaking of his role in the plan of God, says that it was revealing the mystery. How the mystery, this is Ephesians 3, 3 and 4. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this... You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You can perceive. You can understand. Think of some things that Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. Look at a few more and then make uh, some points from this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew seven twenty one. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. And then, of course, the story of the man building his house on the rock and the man building his house on the sand. In the teachings of Jesus, and really, especially the teachings of Jesus, but also those of Paul's and other inspired apostles, understandability is taken for granted. Jesus is not thinking. They may have just a difficult time understand what I'm saying. I'm talking about truth seekers here. The idea is if they want to understand, they can understand, and then it's a matter of either obeying or not obeying. Understandability is taken for granted, at least for those who want to understand. But here's a passage we need to take consideration. What about 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter begins to talk about the teachings of Paul. There are some things in them, he's talking about the writings of Paul, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. Amen. <laughs> and of course, if you've been through Romans or 1 Corinthians, there are some things that are tough. Well, then how are we going to reconcile that with the point we just made previously? That the scriptures were made to be understood. I think the answer is found in the scriptures themselves. The scriptures themselves talk about meat and solid food. 
or uh, meat and milk or solid food and milk. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12, and then again in verse 14. You need someone to teach again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Some parts of the scriptures are basic principles. They are milk. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So we have elementary teachings, milk, solid food, maturity for those things that require more digestion. Sometimes people ask, is math easy or hard? How do you answer that question? Is math easy or hard? Depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about the milk, the elementary principles, it's not too hard. But as I remember from my high school days, it can be hard. It has some advanced elements. Maybe that helps you understand what's going on in the scriptures. Well, here's something we hear from many who are affected by postmodernism. We need a new hermeneutic. Now, we're talking hermeneutic. We're just talking way of analyzing the scripture. How do we analyze the scripture? And here's the bad guy. <clears throat> For brethren and others who have been affected by postmodernism. Seni. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's a good thing. <laughs> if you do know, okay, that's all right. But what do people mean when they say, that Seni? You see this all over the internet. This Seni just enslaved me for many years. Well, you know what? They, they, that's command, example, and necessary inference. So now you know what, if you ever see that referred to. Command, example, and necessary inference. That sounds sometimes like lawyers. Someone has suggested, and I kind of like the suggestion. You just say, show me, tell me. Let me figure it out for myself. That's another way of saying command, example, and necessary inference. And when we're talking this, we're not talking some kind of a formal hermeneutic or method of interpreting the Bible. We're just talking, how does God communicate his will to us? That's all we're saying. How will anyone communicate their will to us if it's not through something like this? Just some illustrations. These go back to some preaching. I remember hearing from my dad. These illustrations come straight from my dad. Command. Tell me. Of course, this is something that most of us do not have difficulty with. God commands certain things. Do that. That's not where the problem is with most people. But what about examples? If this is the illustration, if you see that uh, that your parents are very happy, of course I'm going back and you're imagining yourself as a child again. Your parents are very happy. That your sister has cleaned up her room. I'm just so happy that you cleaned up your room. It makes mama so happy to see your room so nice and clean. Do you have to be a rocket scientist to know that she's not going to be happy if you clean up your room as well? The example of your sister and the fact that your mother is so happy with that example should be able to communicate something to you about her will for you. And so all through the scriptures we have this command, imitate, imitate. You ever notice how much you see it in the book of 1 Corinthians? 
Be ye imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. The Thessalonians were told in chapter 2, uh, verse 14, to be imitators, imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus, which are in Judea. Should we imitate good people and good churches in the scriptures who are approved by God? Who would argue with that fact? And yet sometimes we get so hung up on terminology. And so you hear terminology like this. Are you going to bind? Are you going to bind examples? Which examples are binding? Uh, Sometimes when people get into that mode, I just go back and ask the question as I just asked it. Is it good to imitate good people from the scriptures and good churches from the scriptures? That's not the way they're expecting to deal with the problem. Can we know we're pleasing to God if we imitate good examples? The old example. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. The disciples met together on the first day of the week to break bread. Paul preached to them and preached till midnight. What did they do? They met together on the first day of the week as a congregation. They were waiting for this to break bread. Can we know that God will be happy with us if we meet together on the first day of the week to break bread? And can we know that he approves of that? Can we know if he approves if we take the Lord's Supper on Tuesday? Meet together then to partake of the Lord. We can't know that. We can know that he's happy when we meet together on the first day of the week to break bread. Well, that's a very legalistic approach. The very... Term implies that maybe we're looking at things not as children wanting to follow parents, but maybe it's something else. And then, of course, God wants us to, to, to infer things from things that he has taught us. The illustration, if my sister goes to Target and buys some nice, I'm going to say Cracker Barrel, since I'm south. She goes to Cracker Barrel and she buys some nice coffee cups for mom. And she takes them to mom and, oh, I just love these coffee cups. And I remember that right there in that same section in Cracker Barrel, they had some saucers that went with the coffee cups. Do I need to be a rocket scientist to know that she would also be happy with the saucers that go with the coffee cups? That would be an inference that I could safely make without any problems. There are inferences all through the scriptures or or places where God wants his people to draw out inferences. An easy example is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The point that God wants to make through Paul is that you should not partake of meat sacrificed to idols. If you do, you're having fellowship with the idols. But God wants them to just figure that out on their own on the basis of some think points that Paul made. He says in verse 15, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. And of course, that's what postmodernists say we're incapable of doing. You can't judge. It's just too complex and too uh, muddied. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? That's a rhetorical question. And of course, the answer is yes. But what's its point? 
if you partake of that which has been sacrificed to idols, you are having a sharing in with that. Didn't just come out and say it. No command here. No real example. What's he wanting? He's wanting us to infer. So, we're talking communication when we say command, example, and necessary inference. And of course, so much of the Bible is not involved in this. It's involved in encouraging us and building up. You have the Psalms, you have uh, poetry, but it's a part of a common sense approach to scriptures. Command, example, necessary inference. Tell me, show me, let me figure it out. We're just talking communication. You know what a big part of the problem is, I think. We're dealing with all of these issues and the infiltration of postmodernism into our way of thinking. How do we look at God? Do we look at God simply as humble children, just seeking any indication that we can of what he wants us to do? Yes, we're going to have to do some interpretation. But if our hearts are full of love and subjection to God, that's going to affect the way that we look at God and his word. But here's the problem. Instead of looking at God as humble children, often we look at his word as if we were defense attorneys trying to find loopholes. Uh, And when sometimes we point out, well, the scripture said it didn't say that. How do you know? Could you just prove beyond a shadow of a doubt? And sometimes you feel like we're in a courtroom. Are you going to bind examples as law? The children talk that way. They want to obey their parents. Mother, are you going to bind this example of my sister cleaning up her room on me? No, but we're starting to look at the Bible as lawyers, not as loving children when we talk that way. I'll use some New Jersey terminology. What are you, some kind of lawyer? God doesn't want that. He wants us to be as loving children. Or maybe sometimes we look at the Bible as prosecutors. I'm going to find something that's going to nail him for sure. That's our problem. That's our problem so often. We're not God's lawyers. We're not God's prosecutors. We're God's children. And remembering that fact will help us to avoid some of these misconceptions that come to us through these worldly philosophies. They come and go. You know, some of those Greek philosophies now, especially if you try to figure out Gnosticism. Dig it up sometime if you want to see something that's really confusing and seems weird. But that was the end thing among many people then. And those who opposed them were considered to be ignoramuses. And I'm sure the same thing may be true eventually. Some of the philosophies that are so popular today on our college campuses. But what did Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away. But my word shall not pass away. He's talking about his prophecies there in Matthew chapter 24. I realize. But I don't think it's stretching things. To apply this to all of his words. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you thinking of so many friends and loved ones who've been taken captive by shallow philosophies of this world. And we think of those, our children now, we think of those who are still in the formative age of their way of thinking. We're thinking of how these ungodly philosophies are eating away on them. Help us, Father, to know the enemy so that we can combat him through the love of your word and the knowledge of your truth. Thank you, Father, for the good influences of our life and help us to be those kinds of influences in the lives of others.
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for your good attention.